Let's just pray for a moment. God, we hear that on our own, it's a lost cause. But with you, the right man on our side, Lord Jesus, you are the king of this world, the Lord of all. We, knew, we know that you will win the battle. Thank you, God. Pour your spirit out onto us in this place today. We pray in your name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to be here. Good to worship with you. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to ask you to open up your Bibles to, uh, first of all, the Old Testament to 2 Kings chapter 23. If you need to look in the table of contents, nobody will judge you. 2 Kings in the Old Testament chapter 23. We're just going to read the first six verses here. Then we'll move on to the New Testament. So 2 Kings chapter 23. Then the king called together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. He went up to the temple of the Lord with the people of Judah the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which had been found in the temple of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and keep his commands, statutes and decrees with all his heart and all his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. The king ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the priests next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah and all the starry hosts. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. He did away with the idolatrous priests appointed by the kings of Judah to burn incense on the high places of the towns of Judah and on those around Jerusalem, those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and the moon, and to the constellations and to all the starry hosts. And he took down the Asherah pole from the temple of the Lord to the Kidron Valley outside Jerusalem and burned it there. He ground it to powder and scattered the dust over the graves of the common people. That's God's word from the Old Testament. Now from the New Testament is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. This is Paul writing to the church in Ephesus, to Christians there. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world. And of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace 
expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Friends, this is God's word for us this morning. Thank you, God, for your precious word. Thank you that you use it to speak to us. Thank you that you don't pull any punches. You just let us know what you're thinking and that you also comfort us and give us guidance and grace. We are so grateful for your word. Teach us through it this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's, uh, it's Halloween week, right? Somebody would say that's the important thing this week. Uh, but something way more important is than that is happening this week. It's a special anniversary. It's the 500th anniversary of something very important that happened in the church. Um, we're going to see a couple people here who try to figure out what that is in this video. Two thousand seventeen is a big anniversary of a big religious event. Okay. It's been five hundred years. Can you guess? If you had to guess, what would you think happened in fifteen seventeen? Fifteen seventeen. Um. <laughs> what? Go ahead. You picked the worst person. Oh, you may want to not waste your time with that video. <laughs> I would have no idea. I'm sorry. I'll bet you've heard of it. Do tell. Oh. Oh. No, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> well, I know what happened. Is it a Bible? Some people must have died. There was a hanging here, there. Crusades? No. That was earlier. Ooh, is this the Mayflower? Good guess. It was the Mayflower. Oh, people no. got thrown out to this. No. Okay. That was later. No, wait. I Okay, I didn't do a good job at history. I'm sorry. I'm going to say... Think. What is his name? I forget his name. Um, Dave. I think it's like Mark something. Not too sure. Martin. You should tell me his name. Uh, Martin Luther King. Uh, Martin Luther King. Martin. <laughs> My history is so bad. Luther King. Oh, Martin Luther King. He can't be that old. No. Oh, help Martin me. Luther. <laughs> King. Martin Luther King. The main or prominent figures in my mind around that time would be Martin Luther. Very good. I want to say something along the lines of Martin Luther, but I'm probably off. No, you're really? exactly right. Oh my gosh, yay! I know something. <laughs> what do you know about him? What did he do? He didn't let him just kick him off the bus. He stood up for himself. The English monarchy wanted to impose something or other, and he said no and broke off and got his own church. That is a great guess. This is a Nicaea, something like that? Nicaea, this one. Was that the, the 29 theses? How many theses was it? It's 10 theses, something like that. Is that the, the 99 theses that he did? Was it 101 or something? He nailed the 50 theses, the theses on the, the door. He nailed 100 theses. 96, I think it was? This is 95 theses. Luther nailed the 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. That's when Martin Luther posted his 95 theses. Whether or not he nailed that onto the Catholic Church door is uh, debatable. Any idea why, what profession he had if he was writing theses? 
He was a writer? <laughs> yeah, he was definitely a writer. Was he a crusader? Was he like a professor? Well, he was a theologian. He was a yeah, yeah, exactly. So he was a professor at the University of Wittenberg. I don't remember what else, Indulgences or something? Something like that. Do you have any idea what an indulgence is? Yes, but not in the sense of maybe what you're talking about. <laughs> they still sell them in, in, in Mexico. It, this day, that's no joke. Like food or drink or... Um, yeah, they do that every single Saturday with ice cream, so... So indulgences <laughs> were a fee that you would pay to remove the temporal effects of sinning. And so he thought that some practices needed to be changed or reformed. Please tell me you've been prepped for this interview, right? 15 You're seconds. not supposed to still be recording. <laughs> pass. I pass, okay. Yeah, and shut it off now? I'm okay. All right, Thanks are we so done? Much. Thanks, yes, sorry. thanks so much. That was so nice of you. Ask me anything you want about the Dallas Cowboys. I can tell you. <laughs> are we a plant? Great. Thanks a lot. Thank you. This was fun. <laughs> That's good. Were we trying to see how far I could go? Yeah, <laughs> oh you God. did great. Did I really? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, people trying to learn a little history lesson there. It's, uh, if you didn't catch it through that, it is the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther, who was a monk, a priest, and a uh, professor. Uh, he nailed 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. And it, he did it on October 31st, 1517. That is 500 years ago this Tuesday. Now, uh, he was a professor at uh, UW. That's not the University of Wisconsin. That is the University of Wittenberg in Germany. And um, he, um, he was willing to say some things that were fighting words, let me tell you. Here's one of the things he wrote. The Pope can't forgive your sins, only God can. Man, it was, it was scary what he was writing there. He was responding to the practice in the Roman Catholic Church of the selling of indulgences. I love what that one woman says. Yeah, I, I know about indulgences. That's what I do every Saturday with ice cream. Did you hear that? That was a great line. People were being told, indulgences were these, uh, these things, that people were being told that they, if they paid some money, then their sins or the sins of their loved ones could be taken away and they would be able to head right into heaven from purgatory. Um, and indulgence was like this little slip of paper that you received that proved that this is what was happening. And there was a guy named Friar Tietzel. I love that guy's name, Friar Tietzel. Uh, and he was in charge of selling indulgences in Germany. And um, he had a little phrase that he used to say all the time. He carried this little box around with him. And it was filled with uh, gold coins that people have been dropping in. And here was this little phrase. Every time a coin in the coffer rings, another soul from purgatory springs. Do you like that? And, uh, well, Martin Luther did not like it. He was ticked off. He, he was incredibly incensed that somebody would suggest that you can sell, buy and sell, forgiveness. And he wanted people to know this is not right and he even went so far as to argue that the bible alone sola scriptura is the the term that he used only the bible is the infallible rule of faith and practice the church gets to interpret the bible but doesn't get the last word the last word is from the bible itself and that was one of three huge reforms that martin luther brought now you might be like uh well, what's this all about? Well, here, here's, here's one of them. He said, 
the Bible is the final say. That's huge. Now, we might feel like that's sort of a normal thing to hear, but that's because we live 500 years later and we're part of the Protestant movement. The second thing he said is salvation is by grace alone through faith, and no amount of good works or good deeds will make you right with God. And that was a pushback on the church, which was implying that if you did good things, then you could become right with God. Or if even if you paid money, you could become right with God. And he says, no, hey, come on, look what it says in the Bible. It says salvation only comes by grace, and that is through faith that God gives to you. And thirdly, he said, the Bible should be available to anyone to read so they can see it for themselves. It shouldn't only be in Latin. It should be in everybody's native language. And so he translated the Bible into German, and he finished that in 1534, and he was was making it available. And and soon after, it it happened in English, and it happened in French, and it happened in a ton of other languages, and it's still actually even happening today. This is one of the reasons we support Wycliffe Bible translators who go out and still are translating the Bible into the languages of people who have never heard it in their own native tongue before. This is a big deal. People got burned at the stake for translating the Bible into their their native language. When um, you are tempted to set your Bible down and not read it, think, this was so precious that people were willing to die so that I could read this in English. That's huge. Well, that's what Martin Luther did. And um, we as Methodists, we're part of that Protestant movement as well, that protesting movement against the Roman Catholic Church. We came out of the Anglican Church, which was one of the protesting churches. But then you go 200 years down the road, and that church had gotten kind of stagnant. And so John and Charles Wesley showed up. And by the way, they were massively influenced by their mother, Susanna Wesley, who was just a great theologian in and of herself. She started a Bible study, by the way, that grew so big that her husband, who was the minister of the parish, he got really jealous because more people came to her, her Bible study than came to his services. You like that? John and Charles realized that the church in England was pretty dead spiritually, and they urged people to take their faith seriously and not just go through the motions of religion. And they taught these pretty simple general rules. Do no harm, do all the good you can, and stay in love with God. Does that sound so crazy? Don't do bad stuff. Do good stuff. And keep connected and in love with God. That's, that doesn't sound so crazy to us, but that's because God has been working through that movement, and we are blessed to be a part of that. The Wesleyan Methodist movement totally transformed England in the 1700s. They started schools, they built hospitals, they started jobs programs, they visited prisoners, they brought the gospel to the people in the fields as the people were coming out of the mines. They weren't going to go to church. They didn't have time, they were too exhausted, and so John Wesley brought church to them. And they would preach like crazy, and people would be like, people would experience the real power of the Holy Spirit. They wouldn't just be like, oh, that's a very nice... uh, little theological diatribe you just gave to us. Now I'm going home to wash up after the mine. No, they experienced the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And so they then gathered under the direction of the Wesleys into small groups where they learned to pray for each other and encourage each other in the faith. 
and learn to serve other people as well. And many scholars argue that that Methodist movement, which affected thousands and thousands of people across England, basically saved England from having a bloody and violent revolution like the French did across the, uh, across the English Channel in 1789. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just think Les Mis. Okay, hey, we're all going to the barricades. You know that? That's the French Revolution. And that was avoided in England because there was so much good that was done in the name of Jesus Christ through the Wesleyan movement. Well, if you're a history buff like me, you're eating this up. You are saying, yes, Pastor Bill, church history. Bring more of it. I can't have enough. And, uh, you know, bring on John Calvin. That'll be cool. We can talk predestination. Or Jacob Arminius. We can talk about free will. Or, or Huldrych Zwingli. Isn't that a great name? Zwingli. I had a, I had a friend in uh, college. He was trying to remember all the different um, uh, reformers and, and, and movers and shakers. And so he, he made a rap. And I don't remember anything of the rap. It's Rob Withrich, by the way. He made a rap. And at, at the very end, he ended it with, Zwingli, Zwingli, fresh. Which... It was dumb, but it worked. I still remember it today. John Knox, uh, Presbyterian, the Anabaptists, the Waldenians. I could go on and on and on. And you, you might be like, that's very nice, Pastor Bill. I'm glad you're having this experience. But I'm not really a church history person. Well, if you're not, oh, it's so sad. Because it's awesome. It is so cool to see what God has done in people's lives down through history. But it does need to be delivered in a palatable way. Not in boring ways where, you know, you are bored to death in the process, but hopefully you catch the, the power of what God was doing. Well, why am I telling you all this? What is the purpose of just remembering this date that happened 500 years ago and some other people that experienced this? Well, let me just um, start by saying, let me tell you about a little experience I had on the Appalachian Trail. I'm hiking through Maine, and, I and the trail ends in a swamp. It's not supposed to end. I can see the markers that go on through the swamp, and I'm saying, is this really the plan? And I could tell that other people disagreed with that as well and had trooped their way around the edge of the swamp trying to figure out what's going on. Beavers had shown up, and this nice little creek that ran next to it had been dammed up several times. And so what should have been just a nice sort of smooth uh, hiking experience suddenly became a tramp through a swamp or a tramp around a swamp. And, and it really wasn't until somebody came by and busted through those beaver dams and let all that swamp water out and let the, the stream flow again that, that the trail returned to normal. And, and friends, that's what reformation is. It's God sending somebody to a, a place where religion has gotten kind of stale and, uh, and, you know, we're all comfortable, but we're not really doing anything, and busts through the dam and lets that water flow fresh again. Would you rather drink fresh stream water or swamp water? I'd rather filter my water out of the stream. Thank you very much. So both Martin Luther and John Wesley, they were involved in these reforming movements. They sensed that God was calling them to declare a new movement of the Spirit. It was time to wake up. It was time for the church and church people to understand that God was doing something new and he wanted them to be alive and fresh. He didn't want it to be like a stagnant pool or a stagnant swamp. God had 
sparked reformation in their lives. But what's really cool is that God has done this over and over again throughout history. He's done it in the Bible. He's done it since the Bible in the, in the, in the history of the church. He's inspired people to declare that a little bit of starting over is sometimes super, super good. A rebooting of the system, a fresh beginning, a new start. And it's not so much a new perspective that they're bringing, but it's really going back to the fundamentals. It's, it's going back to what's really important. Now, if you're a sports fan, you understand when people say, that team has gotten off track and they've forgotten the fundamentals. We need to go back to the fundamentals. If you're planning on watching the Bills game today, you hope that people practice the fundamentals, like good blocking, okay, or tackling. If somebody runs past you, you don't just say, that person just ran past me. No, you jump on them, okay? That's a fundamental. And, and uh, for soccer, it would be lots of passing. Keep passing the ball. Have good ball control. When you do that, eventually the goals will come. For music, it's, I know you want to improve on your piece that you're playing, but you just need to go back and play your scales a whole bunch more times. You need to work on your fingering of the fundamentals. For writing, it's, I know you don't feel like writing, but sit down and start writing, and then you'll rewrite, and then you'll edit, and then it'll get better, and it'll get better. You return to the fundamentals. Well, reform, reform is always about going back to the fundamentals of the faith. Things like, we ought to be able to read the Bible and find out what God is telling us, that we can find out and know that God is real. We see this in, um, in, in the, the passage from Second Kings that we read today out of the Old Testament. King Josiah decides to start obeying the book of the law. Now, here's how bad things had gotten. They lost the Bible. They did. They lost the Old Testament. They lost the book of the law. And one day, this guy is cleaning out a side storage room, and he finds it, and he takes it to the king and says, you know, we ought to pay attention to this. And he reads it to him, and the king is floored. He's like, oh my goodness, we're in, wow, we're in trouble. We have been violating God's covenant all over the place. And he finds out that especially his father and his grandfather were some of the biggest violators. King Josiah's grandfather, King Manasseh, was terrible. He did all sorts of things that, that were against what God called, including setting up all these pagan God statues in the temple, which is supposed to be only worshiping the one real God. And so they've got all these, these Asherah poles and these Baal statues and everything. And King Josiah says, hey, we're taking all that stuff out and we're going to burn it. We're going to burn it and spread, it, spread the ashes around. We're going to get right with God. We're going to start obeying God. We're going to be reforming how we function here. And God honors this. God keeps maybe some of the punishment that was coming later away during the time of Josiah because he's faithful. You know, reform is something that has happened over and over again in the Bible, but also in church history. You know that monks and monasticism, monks living alone and nuns as well, that was a whole reform movement that was a huge movement that happened in the Middle Ages in which they said, you know, church like normal is getting kind of stagnant. So we're going to separate ourselves and we're going to kind of live on our own and we're going to focus on our spiritual lives. And so 
St. Benedict started his monastery in Monte Cassino in, in Italy in 529, and he wrote his Benedictine rule, and he, he basically came up with a lot of sort of ground rules for how people ought to live, and it made a big difference. They're actually the ones that pretty much kept the Bible from getting burned and, and destroyed throughout the Middle Ages because they kept on copying it over and preserving it. I, I heard a, um, a monk talk once about um, his vows. He, he had a, a rope tied around him, a cincture it's called, and it had three knots on it. And he said, these three knots here, they represent our vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Poverty, chastity, and obedience. He said, and what we like to call them is no money, no honey, and a boss. Which I, I was like, that's pretty good. A monk who makes jokes, that's good. What, what they did is they... They basically started all these movements, and it kind of happened again and again. Franciscans, Dominicans, Cistercians, Trappists, all these people. Okay, and guess what? They just said, we need to start over. It's gotten stagnant. Let's blow open the dam and let the water flow again. And even the Protestant Reformation that you have heard about a little bit this morning, 500 years ago this week, you can't earn or buy your relationship with God. Martin Luther was reading through Romans. He was also reading Ephesians. And this passage from Ephesians chapter 2 was really important. For it is by grace you've been saved. Did you catch that? You, you're not in a relationship with God because of the things that you've done. It's not your good works. It's because God is gracious that you're saved. And the way you know about that is because somebody told you and you said, wow, I, I'm not sure I believe it. And then you kind of step out in faith and say, do I believe that? And as you begin to do that, you, you begin to sense that God is real and you begin, oh my goodness, I, I actually can be freed from the, the guilt of my sin, from the junk that, that, that kind of wears down on me. And, and Paul says, it's not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. And it's not your good works so that no one can boast. And then he goes and he says, because we're God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, did you catch the, the difference? He says, basically, look, God swoops in and gives you new life through faith. You didn't do anything to deserve it. But once you realize what you've been given, you go, oh, that is, wow, that is great. I want to respond. In it. And so I want to respond by doing some good in other people's lives. I want to reach out. I want to do good works, not because I'm getting God to like me, but because I'm responding genuinely to the action of God in my life. Tim Tennant, who's the uh, president of Asbury Theological Seminary, recently reminded a group of pastors that about every 500 years, there's this major crisis or shift that happens in the church, which basically knocks all the dams open. Like if it isn't happening already as it is, it does happen sort of continually in, in churches and in various smaller movements. But about every 500 years, God lets a really big movement flow through the church and really knock a lot of the stagnant pool, the dams open to open up the stagnant pools. In 451 AD, that's almost 500 years in, the Council of Chalcedon, started to nail down some, some things that weren't really clear. People had been arguing, who is Jesus really? And they said, look, if you look at the scripture, you can see he's both God and human. 
He's both God and human. Now, you might be like, well, yeah, I know that's what they always told me. Well, they always told you it because of the Council of Chalcedon. All right? And these guys worked hard on this to determine this. It wasn't that they discovered it, but they affirmed it. They also affirmed that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They, they searched the scriptures and said, what's God really like? And as they looked through the scriptures, they affirmed God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you know what happened when they got that right and they affirmed it? There was this massive growth that happened in the church. And all this church planting in the church grew and grew. About 500 years later, 1054 AD, the church split in this, it's called the Great Schism. It was this tragic split of the Eastern and Western churches. They were arguing over the nature of the Holy Spirit. There was only one difference in the Greek, one Greek letters difference, and it had a different meaning. And so they, they argue, and guess what? You can't prove it either way from the Bible. This is just sort of like an argument that people were too bullheaded to, to, to get along with each other. They, they went their separate ways. It was a big breakup. And once they, everything had settled down, they kind of got back to following God. And guess what? The church grew. And there was lots of churches planted. And the church grew again in a, in a huge way. 500 years later, 1517, Martin Luther nails his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg. He sparks the Protestant Reformation. Guess what happened? Tons of growth in the church. New churches planted all across the world this time. Well, now here we are, 2017, today. And guess what? Our, the church, the, the church with a big C, is in crisis across the world. The church is growing, by the way, a lot, but there's still a lot of arguing. What, is, is the Bible really an authority? Is Jesus really the only way to salvation? Uh, is the Trinity really real? Some people are still arguing about that. What do we do about human sexuality and, and how people should live their lives that way? How do we disciple believers? How do we bring the gospel to the world? And guess what? I don't know how exactly this will all work, but this is what I'm confident of. When this all shakes out, there's going to be massive growth in church planting because that's what happens every time God sweeps in and allows there to be a shakeup in what's going on. Now, you've had this long, big church history lesson for me, being reminded of what God is doing by raising up reforming movements. What does this have to do with us? I mean, my suspicion is that you kind of came to church today, you just thought it was a normal day, right? You're just going to come to church, and you're going to worship, and you're going to go home, and you're going to watch the Bills game, and this is going to be a nice Sunday, right? What does this have to do with us? Well, I think it has a lot to do with us, because I know that God is working, and he's always asking, is there something in your life that needs to be reformed? Is there a reformation in your life that needs to happen, something that needs to happen in your soul, something that you need to talk to God about. And I want to suggest that there's two things that people tend to be tempted by, two imbalances that people tend to get out of whack. On the one hand, people are tempted by the whole concept of, you know what, this whole free grace thing kind of freaks me out. I just want to earn my salvation. 
I don't want to be indebted to God. I just want to do what the system tells me I'm supposed to do. I want to do my duty, and then I'll make God happy with me that way. I'll be good enough on my own strength. I'll just keep the rules. I'll be a good person. Well, if you've ever really, really tried, like not just thought about that and said, I'll try that someday, but you said, this week I'm really going to try. If you've ever really done that, I absolutely know what happened. You messed up. Because none of us are able to do that. When you really give it your all, you still find that you're broken. You still find that you're unable to do this on your own. Some people really desperately need to be reminded that we can't do this on our own. It really is the grace of God which heals us and makes us whole. God's grace is the reason that we are loved. And, and this isn't like some concept, some like religious thing. Think about it like parents. Okay, if you have kids, I guarantee you there is nothing they can do that will make you love them less. Now, you might be disappointed in them, but you don't love them less. In fact, if they start doing crazy stuff, you may lean into loving them even more. All right? And guess what? There's nothing they can do that would make you love them more, right? You already love them. And if, if you don't have kids, just think about uh, your, your parents, your relationship. There's nothing you could have do, done that would make your parents love you more. That's the way God is. God is radically in love with us. And you cannot mess it up in terms of, well, he won't love me if I do this. If you do that, he will just reach out to you and say, I'll, I'll help you with that too. I will. And you can't make him like you more by being better. Have you uh, been worried that maybe you're not good enough, that you need to work harder on getting God to like you? Let me put your mind at ease. You're not good enough. You just aren't. You aren't. But the beautiful thing is God knows it. And he's like, I already know that. And I love you. I already love you. So, so much. You're broken. You can't be fixed on your own. But I will offer to heal you, to help you, to make you healthy. And taking him up on that offer is something that we have the privilege of doing. That's a, that's a wonderful gift that he gives to us. You trying to earn your righteousness on your own is like a little kid making mud pies and bringing them in to their parents and saying, can we, here's the pies to feed to the guests today, okay? It doesn't matter how good they make the mud pies, you're not going to feed it to the guests today. I guarantee it, right? But as they make those mud pies, you, you don't love them any less, right? You don't say, oh, get out of here, kid. You still love them. In fact, you, you, you maybe marvel at the fact that they're trying. That's works, okay? Works righteous. On the other extreme is cheap grace, Cheap grace is when you're, you're saying, oh, God does it for me. I can't do it on my own. I know what I'll do. I'll just do whatever I want, and then God will forgive me. Right? Because he says he has to. Because it says he loves me. So I get it. I get to sin, and then God forgives me. It's like a really great little transaction that we have going, right? Now, 
you might think, well, okay, isn't that true? Well, yeah, but think about it like a relationship. If somebody sacrificed for you in a huge way, I mean, God sacrificed for us in, in the sense that he actually went to the cross for us and died. That's how serious our sin is. But if somebody else just went way out of their way to sacrifice for you and you were like, oh, thanks a lot. By the way, I'm going to do the same thing tomorrow and it's going to take just as much effort on your part to save me again. Do you think they'd like that? Would they feel respected? Would they feel loved? That's what we do to God when we say, are you going to forgive me? Okay, I'm going to live my life my own way and then I'm just going to come and ask you for your forgiveness. That's not a relationship. That's, that's an abusive relationship. We don't want to be in that kind of relationship with God. God is not wanting us to slap him in the face with either, I can do this on my own, God, or, oh, you're going to do it for me? Okay, well, then I'm just going to abuse that. Both ways are negative. What's, what's in the middle is, God, you're going to help me, and I'm so thankful I'm going to respond in grace. That's the abuses are, are what we, those are the swamps. And breaking through to the center to let the stream flow again, that's the healthy that God is bringing reform after reform after reform. 500 years ago, Martin Luther decided to start over. My question to you is, how about you? How about you? Is there anything that you need to start over with God? Where are you on that spectrum? Are you tempted to try to earn your salvation? Or are you tempted to be like, you know what? I got my little sin. I like to do it. And I'm just going to trust that God's going to keep forgiving me. What do you need to talk to God about this morning? Starting over is an opportunity for you and me. And this is just one more opportunity. It's a big anniversary this week. So just a good reminder to us. What do I need to start over? Brandon's going to play a song together. Uh, we can just stay in our seats. You might want to do some work with God there in the seat quietly. If you want to come down to the altar, you're welcome to come down. Let's just talk to the Lord.